Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We discuss the prorogation of Parliament. We talk about the looming spending review. And you ask us, is Jeremy Corbyn's media strategy his fault or the media's? So Stephen is sitting across from me having written, what, four articles already today? Don't know how many you've written, but it is the day in which we've discovered that the government is going to suspend... Parliament. So why don't you explain a bit about what the dates are and, and what that means? So the government has, I mean, nominally the Queen has, but the government has yeah. used its, the executive has used its prerogative powers to basically bring the parliamentary session to a an end on, on a date yet to be decided from the 9th to the 12th of September, Yeah, which will essentially mean that Parliament will sit for a little over a week. Now, of course, the signif- the important significance of this is that Parliament only comes back on the 2nd and then it won't come back until the 14th under under the government's plans. Now, the significance of this, of course, is that it, it decreases by essentially, I think, seven sitting days, which is actually yeah. quite a lot, the amount of time that Parliament has to legislate to stop no deal. Oh, and the other important thing is, is that the significance of the 14th is it is basically as late as you can get away with doing it, given the statutory obligations that the legislature has already put on the executive and as close as possible to the final European Council meeting on the 17th of October. So those statutory obligations, that's to report back about the Northern Irish yeah. Assembly? Yeah, essentially, the government now has a legal obligation to turn up a part, well, to put forward a report and then there to be a parliamentary debate within five days within certain intervals. Obviously, the the point of this is to prevent the executive having gone, we're going to use our ability to set the, the, the dates and parliament sits to say that there will be no parliament until the 1st of November. Mm. Good luck stopping no deal now. Okay, thanks. Bye. The sort of open question is, how important is it? Now, my no deal ometer, as it were, has been quite high for a, a, a while because essentially I don't think of the three options that MPs can take to prevent no deal. Revocation, ratification of the withdrawal agreement, even if there is something which Boris Johnson can go, oh, you know, you know, I've secured this great diplomatic achievement, it will look like the withdrawal agreement. Yeah. Or, and this is the sort of less effective one, it can seek an extension. 
we kind of know that this parliament is highly unlikely to go for revocation. We've seen that it is not that into going for ratification. So all that's left is it for it to pass some kind of bill similar to the one that it passed last time, but one which an executive couldn't simply ignore if it wished, going, yeah, we want an extension. So it puts yet more time pressure on MPs, although equally I'm I kind of essentially think right the the yeah the, the significant thing is actually is, is not whether or not it is a constitutional outrage I actually personally don't think it is I think it's an example of us having an outrageous constitution right like it is, <laughs> it is it is a bad idea in my view to have a situation where the executive has a bunch of powers nominally exercised in the right of the queen purely by dint of it being there that there is unless parliament has specifically legislated against them it can just go where where's it written down Mm. and although this is a much more significant use of that power than John Major doing it over cash for access because ultimately the worst that happened over that was he avoided some questions that would have mildly embarrassed him on the way to his already epic landslide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, whereas this is a hugely <clears throat> consequential use of, of the power. The power is part of our constitution. Our constitution is bad. The executive has too much power in our constitution. But I think the important thing about Burko saying and he thinks it's constitutional outrage is that, of course, will license him in his own mind to do things that are constitutionally unprecedented to allow MPs to prevent it. So it basically, I think, just increases the, the importance of next week. Mm-hmm. That's interesting about the, the fact that you don't see it as a constitutional outrage. I think lots of our listeners will be like, well, how undemocratic is this? But actually, if you look at the time that we're living in, all of the sort of constitutional norms have been pushed to their absolute limits, haven't they? So you could say this is a constitutional outrage, but it it makes sense in the context of the time we're living in, not least with some of the decisions that John Burko has made that Brexiteers have, have condemned as, as sort of breaking parliamentary rules or breaking the norms. It's the reality that is the thing that matters most here, which is that John Burko has expressed his opinion that it's a constitutional outrage and therefore will help MPs in the limited time they now have to do their stop no deal plan but yeah. but what really concerned me about what you said about the three options that MPs have about have for stopping no deal is that yes they've shown that they managed to extend the leaving date but that was only because it suited the executive then to do so right it didn't suit them but I mean they wanted oh, yeah, to no, sh- sh- yeah. Sh- yeah like the, the, the important thing is at, like ultimately the politician who stopped no deal in March was Theresa yeah so yeah. we're not going to have that situation again Unless unless Boris Johnson secretly doesn't want no deal and is secretly happy to extend the date. Well, so I think this is where kind of... Because essentially the, the Cooper bill that passed, kind of Cooper 2.0, was essentially one where all of the bits that made Cooper 1.0 not a waste of everyone's time were the things that had to be cut out of it in order to get MPs to pass it. Now, the hope of the opponents of no deal is that because it is... Well, I was about to say it is now clear and it's, I mean, like, you know, the excuses that MPs can find to like put their own short term interests over their long term interests are always sort of legion. But seeing as it should now be clear to anyone who is not, you know, willfully deluding themselves, then, then the government is not one which if you pass something as vague and I'm sure they will get the point as Cooper 2.0, then it would not pass it. So the assumption is you could pass something a lot more like Cooper 1.0, which mm-hmm. went, we want an extension that will last as long as a budgeting period, because that means it's more likely to be had. And the executive just needs to take whatever conditions it needs to get on the gin to get this through. 
a far a far more radical sort of bill in terms of what it would have done in terms of the relationship between legislature and uh legislate parliament and executive. <laughs> I'm, because i did the world service so i'm kind of coded into like i must use international phrases <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i can't actually reliably say the word legi- that parliament <laughs> out loud so i think you're right to be uneasy because although i think that theory i mean that theory it's not obviously stupid but it's also not obviously correct it's plausible that mps have absorbed and they would need to do something a lot more radical mm. but i just think right the incentives are just so terrible right like you have a critical mass of labor mps who i think it's it's fair to say that none of them are consciously going but look if i impoverish my constituents through an action that won't be my problem whereas if i stop mm. brexit if i'm seen to stop brexit and my constituents aren't impoverished, that is my problem. I know for a fact that no MP actually has that thought process, right? However, people do respond to incentives, right? Consciously and unconsciously, right? You know, like, yeah, like it's like Pochettino not playing Harry Kane in the champion in their Champions League defeat, right? Because the incentives are not... Sorry, I just like to mention that Spurs lost in the Champions League <laughs> final. But, you know, the incentive of, of doing so is, is that he didn't take a gamble and therefore him losing is not wholly his fault. Whereas if he'd lost and taken a gamble, it's yeah. slightly his fault. By inaction, you're sort of excused. Yeah, yeah. and I, I doubt Pochettino sat there kind of consciously going, hmm, well, on the one hand, I can be worried about... I can be bothered about this. On the other hand, the loss will be a collective failure. But it obviously has an impact and I think there obviously is an impact to the fact that if you are an MP who is worried about, oh, you know, you don't know what it's like in small towns, then actually a no deal works brilliantly for those people. And equally, if you are a conservative MP who is worried about no deal but still wants a future in the conservative party, if you've got this kind of collective action problem, then you sort of know that if everyone who feels the same way as you do in the conservative party acts, then it's fine. However, if if there are only six of you, then you end up in the kind of like Philip Hammond zone. Mm. And no one wants to be in the Philip Hammond zone unless they're Philip Hammond, who is, you know, I find it slightly weird to say, you know, a politician who has achieved one of the top ranked jobs because I, I don't, to be honest, rate Philip Hammond that highly as a political operator. But yeah, like he's achieved, you know, the, the pinnacle essentially of, of what one, one could expect in politics. He's hugely wealthy and bluntly therefore has very little to lose politically, economically, etc, etc. Yeah, so I think you're right to think, mm, is that going to work? That's kind of why I think it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't actually matter how little time people have been given. What matters is, is that their incentives are so bad. I wonder if, you know, limiting the time period that they have to implement the pr- plan is very relevant because they have spent the whole summer refusing to talk to each other about a plan that could possibly work until this week so you know clearly time pressure doesn't mean a huge amount to them when it comes to political reality i mean i think i think the time pressure if anything it's one of the reasons why i kind of think that yeah i actually don't even think it's to be honest that big and i think yeah i think in terms of like norms that our government has broken than, than i do think are real and worrying you know then pretty patel is still there yeah for example this i kind of think like it is the practice of the executive to use this power to get itself out of trouble. The The big difference is, is that what it sees as getting itself out of trouble, uh, I and their own reports and most see as, you know, an economic and social catastrophe. But I kind of think it's, it's, it's within our constitutional bounds. It's just, yeah. I think the reason why it could backfire if, if the government actually does really want to do this, which is 
an open question, is that one of the reasons why MPs have failed to do anything so many times before is they've gone, oh, you know, we've got more time. I'm willing to do this, but not yet. Mm. And because Theresa May bailed them out of their own indecision and inaction in March, a lot of them feel like they were validated, even though they really weren't, and what they passed was too late and would not have fixed the problem if Theresa May had also not wanted to fix the problem. Yeah. But I kind of think that the risk that the government has taken here is that I think next week a lot of things would have fallen short without the kind of big thing of, ooh, we're going to prorogue. Now, I think if it ever had a chance of passing, its chances of passing have been maximised because now I think MPs have yeah, been sent a message that is visible from space that they have got to act. Yeah. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Anoush, in looming election news, but also, you know, important aspects of social policy news, <laughs> the government has brought forward the spending review to next week. Yeah, Sadie Javid cancelled a big speech today. He will instead address MPs next week about, you know, the state of the public finances, the public realm and their spending decisions. Could you just talk us through what the kind of flashing lights on his dashboard are? Yeah, so... First of all, what is a spending review? Spending reviews are longer-term budgets for certain s- certain spending. So usually they're for three or four years of forecast spending, and we haven't had one since 2015. So lots of the public services, local government, have been basically waiting for what is now sort of almost legally obliged to be written up as the long-awaited spending review in in reporting to try and figure out some kind of certainty for their future budgets as they've been grappling with a decade of austerity. So first of all, you know, on the surface, it looks good that we're finally getting a spending review. But as you said, because it's being sort of expedited in view of a potentially early election it's not really a real spending review it's only for a year usually they're for three or four and it's the only things that we've really heard are for sort of politically popular spending departments so schools the health service and the police which were also three things that Boris Johnson was talking about in his Tory leadership campaign not that those departments don't need money but really the the places that are desperate for money like justice social care local authorities child poverty is a big problem you know none of those have been mentioned and also Sajid Javid has signaled that he wants to stick within Philip Hammond's fiscal rules which means not borrowing as much as Boris Johnson was signaling during his leadership campaign so it doesn't really look like turning the taps on public spending it looks more like choosing some very specific things that might sound good to voters to spend a little bit more money on so it does sound cynical but I think local authorities will be relieved for a little bit of certainty even if it's not quite what they were hoping for. This is probably a very stupid question, but what is the difference between a spending review that is only a year long and a budget? Exactly. So it's basically, this is basically like an emergency budget, except we are also expecting a budget in the autumn where Sajid Javid can say, okay, now we know a little bit more about what's going on and we can tweak what I've said in the spending review. It is like a budget, but it's sort of a less certain budget. Also, of course, he's going to be making this spending review next week, which is before 
we know what's happening with Brexit, which makes it, I think, quite meaningless because whatever happens with Brexit, even if Boris Johnson manages to pass a deal, the finances are going to look completely different after that and so they're going to want to change things around. So it does, like you've written and like a lot of people are saying, sound like something that they want to say before an election that can shape their manifesto. Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, it just feels like one of those things where, like, someone's just like, oh, yeah, let's stress test the narrative. Just like, no, I mean, it's a pre election ploy. Of yeah. course it is. I mean, it's what anyone with, you know, half a functioning brain cell would do before an election is go, okay, let's try and get our ducks in a, a row. Mm. But as you say, right, like, whatever happens with Brexit is going to have fairly big implications for this spend, what the, the shape of the spending review and the shape yeah. of the budget. Yeah, so it's, it's purely an, an electoral uh, gambit. Now, yeah, as, as our kind of social policy maven, what to you are the things that they are most likely to need to put some money towards to prevent them becoming running sores in an election? Well, I think housing is a big one because they... <sighs> I don't think I don't know how much Boris Johnson said about housing during his Tory leadership cam- campaign, but the fact that I don't know that suggests to me that he hasn't really grappled with with it as a problem properly yet. I think that's really key, not only because you know people are struggling to find affordable place- places to live, but also because of the very visible homelessness problem as well, which always gets much worse politically, and of course for real people <laughs> in winter. And obviously, winter comes after autumn, so it means that it will be a big problem for for the government then. Some of the health unions have just warned that no deal, which, you know, like you, I think it's quite a likely outcome, could mean a terrible winter crisis for the NHS. So that's another running sore that I think that they'll need to definitely look at, although health does appear to be one of the departments that's going to get more money. And social care, Boris Johnson mentioned it during the campaign. He mentioned it when he was about to go into number 10. He said that he had a plan. We haven't seen sort of any evidence of this plan yet. And if they don't put sort of a down payment on social care in this spending review or in the budget that follows, then that's going to prove to be a huge problem for them because it is already a crisis. And it, and it also it has knock-on effects for other services as well because councils have to spend money on social care and so that means they stop spending money on other things. Actually, I wanted to ask you about the kind of things which go get money versus things which need money because mm. within the safe space of the podcast category, <laughs> I'm... Quite dubious that more money for the NHS is a good idea. It's actually an unprecedentedly large chunk of public funding, but it has these huge... It's like a boat with huge holes in it, and the holes in it are all basically every other part of public spending, right? Like, you know, ultimately, like, everything from if you don't fix your problem with knife crime on the streets... The A and E has more people who've been stabbed or the victims of crime. If you don't fix social care, A and E has more elderly people in hospitals who can't leave. Now, is this a demented view? Because I, I completely get politically why why no one who wants to get elected is ever going to stand up and go, look, actually, it's not that the NHS needs money; it's that the rest of our management of the public realm has been so short sighted than <laughs> than we've just got to keep chucking money at the national religion in order to like fix the things we could have fixed elsewhere for less. But does the NHS itself actually need more money? qua itself or is it just that it's become kind of the public service of last resort well no i mean your view is would be controversial if you were a politician but it's completely uncontroversial in terms of what people say behind the scenes um i remember when they gave that big chunk of money to the nhs for its birthday was it last year or the year before and uh lots of even conservative politicians who were completely loyal to theresa may at the time were saying 
that it would have been helpful for some of that money to go towards councils for their social care budgets because like you say social care is one of the big things that drains the NHS because of its lack of funding so people are stuck in hospital people go into hospital when they probably wouldn't have needed to if they had enough support in the community so it is a bit like spending a hell of a lot of money on a really good sticking plaster um, rather than <laughs> rather than funding you know some of the things that mean that you've broken your leg or grazed your knee in the first place so you're right it would be very controversial for politicians to to come out and say that but lots of councillors you know sort of despair whenever whenever the NHS gets another sort of big bung of money. That said, you know, obviously we have, as we've discussed previously, the number of people with long-term diseases, etc., because of because of the quality of healthcare are going up. So the health service constantly has to expand to yeah. try and help those people. So it obviously does deserve money. But the way that the Conservatives have gone about funding the NHS recently has been very politically cynical. Yeah, it's odd because I, I had this, you know, we had an expected conversation with a Conservative council leader who said they thought the hugely positive thing about a change of government is they were just like, we're, we're cutting this cycle now where we have a problem because the NHS has got worse. Mm. The NHS has got worse because of the way that we approached balancing the, the, the books in 2010-15. This is their thesis, I'm quoting them when I say we. Yeah. And the only way they can reset is if another government comes in and goes actually there's a broader problem here which isn't just going to be fixed by funding this incredibly expensive band-aid and they just start, and that is the positive thing about a labor government is that a labor government would not feel tied into going no 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 there were no mistakes made we just need another yeah the, the money on its birthday is just like one of those things where it's just like really <laughs> yeah like, but yeah yeah, there was a lot of eye rolling behind the scenes when that happened. And so potentially this spending review will just be a sort of bumper version of that. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. This question is from Adam. Is there an argument that, yes, there's a right-wing media bias, but Jeremy Corbyn slash his team are just not that good at playing the media game? Well, this is the sort of eternal question, isn't it, ever since Jeremy Corbyn became leader. How much is his media strategy shaped by the fact that there is just an inevitable bias in the print press and also just by virtue of how broadcasters work against Jeremy Corbyn and how much is it his own fault that he doesn't get a good hearing in, in the media? I think both things can be true. Personally, I think that the print press environment is very, very hostile to whatever Labour leader, really, and Jeremy Corbyn more so because he's more left-wing. And so trying to fight that was incredibly difficult for him and his team. And so they came up with the strategy before the 2017 election where they focused on broadcast and voters who hadn't really seen him before and had only read things about him in, in the press liked what they saw more than we probably gave him credit for and so that strategy seemed to work but that strategy can't work again because people have already seen him and know him now that's my opinion <laughs> oh this is awkward that's actually slightly changed my mind um because mm -hmm. i think what i was going to say is that i think so i think corbyn has two media problems there's the sort of classical like playing on a harder difficulty setting mm. i know i wang on and on about this but ultimately the, the jobs of the various different heads of communication are just not particularly comparable right it is a different skill set when you are 
the SNP and you are in charge of one part of the country, but you are still treated as essentially illegitimate and a bit weird by a large chunk of the media, but you can at least control the arms of government. So the ways you compensate for that are different. If you're the Liberal Democrats and you just are desperately continually having to go, look at me, look at me, mm. or if you're the Greens, you're having to continually go, look at me, look at me, your media strategy, again, is a different a different sort of bucket. Yeah. Um, if you are a government of any kind, it's different. And if you're a Conservative government, it's different still. And if you are the Labour Party, it's, it's different again. There's a specific Corbyn-related problem, which I think the, to return to a plot of last week, the government of national unity stuff I thought really showcased, which is a a tendency to cover him as if he is not a political actor. Yeah, like it's kind of thing where it's just like, okay, it's it's perfectly fine for, you know, people to think that Jeremy Corbyn is not, in their view, a legitimate candidate for for Prime Minister. However, that doesn't change the fact that he is a legitimate political actor, right? He has been elected twice to lead the main opposition party. He is allowed to have political interests. Yeah. And so it's this kind of slightly bizarre sort of like perpetually eye-rolling kind of like, but why doesn't Jeremy Corbyn just sign up to something which would destroy his hopes of ever achieving any of the stuff he wants to achieve and yeah i guess i kind of think if i if i try and scrub away the kind of immediate answer to this question of what would i do which is well i would not take this job i just this is not what you know this isn't what isn't what i would be doing but i kind of think if, if you were just told you couldn't change any of the politics or the personnel i kind of think that their media strategy this is why we've said is actually fairly good mm-hmm. with i guess the difference that i if i were them would be doing a corbyn interview in the mirror kind of a set piece sort of more kind of sit down kind of like corbyn sits with his tea but i would would do what they are doing which is focusing on local media and their like media outriders the media outriders is another example of people acting like yeah you know, this kind of like weird perpetually rolled eyes thing It's not a way I would want to approach being a commentator. But this idea that, like, this idea of friendly commentators who received briefing about what the strategy is was invented by Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party uh, (laughs) on WhatsApp in the middle of 2015 is just... Actually, some of the people propagating it ought to feel ashamed of themselves. it's It's just not true. Well, this reminds me a bit of when I wrote a piece about the alternative left media that that sort of grew up around Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Lots of the things that I found from the people that I spoke to who are running these places, places like the Canary and Evolve, was they felt that they were the equivalent tabloid press that the right has had for decades. And I think it's similar with the Outriders thing. There's so many sort of right-wing shock jocks who will happily go on any media programme and do anything and say say something that you know backs a right-wing point of view why wouldn't you have a left-wing equivalent and who are slightly outrageous and say say things that may not necessarily always stack up but in defense of the left-wing point of view so it reminds me a bit of that of that comparison that people were making at the time some of their you know some of their methods some of their outriders are just sort of the same kind of tactics of the tabloid right-wing press yeah and it's on those things where it's just like I don't care for either of them. But, no, no. But it's a bit like the narrative of Labour anti-Semitism, which is like this problem has a start date of September 12th, 2015, yeah. and all that needs to happen is for this one person to go away. And it's just like, well, what to me still remains the most egregious single act, which is the ability of a Labour backbencher to look at a obviously anti-Semitic mural and had been taken down and ask why it had been. That happened under a different leader. And there was no action under a different leader, mm. right? The problem is clearly is, is deeper and has to be understood in the round, I think, to be properly tackled. 
And I think similarly, it's kind of like, oh, wow, this this new type of media thing. But I kind of think, actually, their strategy is about what I would pick, other than the fact that I do, I think, agree that it's a lot harder to get a favourable third impression than it is to get a favourable second impression, not least because most ordinary people didn't know that much about Corbyn. So I kind of think they actually have quite a good strategy, but I'm just not convinced it is going to work next time. Yeah, I think the thing that was quite refreshing about Jeremy Corbyn's strategy before the last election was was that. It was the sort of local broadcast press. He was always out as well doing rallies and there were huge crowds in crew and all these places and it made him look really good and he's good at those kind of speeches and like you say people didn't know much about him and so what they saw was maybe a bit different from the sort of shady villain that they were reading about in the press so it, that worked for him but I, I agree I don't know how long that can work for especially not when we've when we've seen a bit more of him at the same time I also think one of the problems with their media strategy now is that he isn't on that much stuff so like I know that there's too much weight in in Westminster placed on the Today programme but you don't usually hear Jeremy Corbyn's voice on the Today programme it's always left up to his lieutenants you know John McDonnell does a hell of a lot Diane Abbott did loads last time round and so I do think that maybe it looks a little bit like they're they're hiding him away and if that's a deliberate strategy, that doesn't say much about your faith and your leader. And also, like, these things get better with practice. I think there was a time where he did learn to stop eye-rolling at broadcasters' questions about inconvenient topics, but I think that kind of... That nature has come back a bit since he's scaled back his, his broadcast interviews. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. And our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.